There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, hello, everyone. And on today's Democracy Sausage, we take a flying visit to review the recent Canadian election. We then dig into populism. What are the cultural and institutional features that might be inoculating Australia from this disease? Further, closer to home, we look at the Prime Minister's attempts to ban protesters and whether or not the Extinction Rebellion's tactics are going to work before finally wrapping up and looking at how Albanese is doing as opposition leader. That's all on today's Democracy Sausage. Well, bang a gong, we are on. Welcome back to Democracy Sausage, and this is Dr. Maria Teflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations. Today we've got two great guests. The first is uh, Theo Snogowski, an associate lecturer uh, in the School of Politics and International Relations. Hello, Theo. Hello. And uh, Maya Ziz, welcome back to the show, Director of Media and Communications from Anglicare Australia. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Well, we've got uh, quite a bit to talk about today, but uh, given um, recent events around the world and uh, the sort of specialty of our uh, friend from North America, we're going to sort of take a pit stop in Canada. Uh, and they've had a recent election there. And uh, the result was, was it surprising for you? No, not really. It was basically what everyone had called. Yeah. And, and what was that? What was that? <clears throat> well, it was a liberal was minority government. So the liberals had come from you know, basically the entire caucus could have fit into a minibus the election before last, um, 2011. And then in 2015, they came back and won an enormous majority government. And this time around, they only got a minority. And so and so, what went wrong? You know, it's like some sort of like hair disaster for Justin Trudeau or... Yeah, you know what? I, I would say that it, it's not even that something went wrong. I think he did quite well, all things considering. So he campaigned in 2015 on being the super woke you know, prime minister who would solve all of the social ills of Canada. And the problem with campaigning that way is that you actually have to deliver. And inevitably, governing is a lot harder than campaigning. So for, really? <laughs> it turns out, yeah. Um, but it, it actually ended up that he did a lot. He, he managed to uh, bring down child poverty. He did a lot for the environment, although many would argue not enough, did a lot for indigenous Canadians. Um, so, you know, the government rightfully has a lot of things to point to and they s to say that they did very well. But when you campaign as being uh, very socially progressive, any missteps you make uh, really come at you. So, for example, there was, uh, you may have heard of uh, what is now called the SNC-Lavalin scandal, which is a a scandal uh, out, of an, out of an engineering company that uh, basically the prime minister pressured the attorney general to not prosecute them, uh, to, to adopt what's called a deferred prosecution agreement, which is them saying, hey, we'll just slap you on the wrist and make sure you, you come up with some mechanisms to make sure you don't do it again, but we're not going to. And was you know, that because they were donors or? Well, it's because they were a very big employer. 
and oh, the I politics see. of Quebec are such that, you know, you, you don't want to smack down someone that is responsible for a lot of jobs. Um, that's the line he adopted, that he's standing up for Canadian jobs. But uh, the attorney general that he happened to pressure was um, the first indigenous woman to ever hold that portfolio. And it was not a good look for someone who campaigned on indigenous issues. So she was, quote unquote, demoted to veterans affairs and then resigned mm. from candidate, from uh, cabinet. And then it blew up into this whole thing about whether the prime minister interfered or did not. So there was, there was that strike against him. And then, of course, there's the blackface thing during the campaign, which I remember getting an alert on my phone about that and thinking it was a joke and then reading it in more detail. I'm like, oh, my God. And it wasn't just once, was it? No, no, it was, it was a few times. Uh, Justin Trudeau's admitted in the past that he's got a problem with costumes, as, as he likes to put <laughs> a it. A problem which is, with costumes. That's, that's putting it very charitably, I would say. Um I mean, this is really part of a trend because he went to India when he was prime minister in the last term, and he 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 um, you know put on a lot of uh, traditional Indian dress, and people back home. I mean, people back home thought he was just trying to preach a bit to the not preach a bit, but to to pander a bit to uh, the diaspora in Canada, and it did not work out well for him. He was widely ridiculed. I mean, this is kind of fascinating to, to listen to in a way, like all of these issues that you raise are really very different from the kinds of politics that we that we have here. And we, we even have a question that kind of goes a bit to this from Adam Tadmore, who kind of asks sort of about as the rise of populist leaders across the world, you know, Boris and uh, Donald and Marie Le Pen, for example, you know, uh, well, yeah, what are the kind of cultural and institutional differences that have spared Canada and Australia from this? But I mean, Fia, like what is sort of um, different about Canadian politics to Australian politics in your in your view, what is different about Canadian politics to Australian politics? Yeah, uh, many many things. The foremost of which I suppose would be that Canada's identity, uh, or at least the the popular mythology of its identity, has been crafted around this narrative of multiculturalism. That the official narrative in Canada is that multiculturalism is one of the most important facets of Canadian identity. I think a lot of Canadians actually do feel that way. It's one of the instances where popular mythology and uh, the government line and uh, what people actually feel mostly line up. And, you know, having lived in Australia now for about four years, I don't get that sense here. What do you mean? Yeah, well, yes, I think that's, that's um, I think it's a much more contested um, yeah. space here. Yes. Sure. I think, I think multiculturalism is definitely more contested here. Um, and, you know, there's one of the, the crucial fault lines in Australian politics is immigration and the boats and what you do with refugees. And uh, that's not really a conversation we're having in Canada. It's not because we're necessarily any any more accepting or – I mean, Canadians like to think they're very accepting and, you know, we, we define ourselves counter to the Americans who we see as crazy and reckless and bigoted. But, I mean, the reality is that underbelly exists in Canada too. So – at the election, uh, sorry, I don't know very much about Canadian politics, but were there any populist figures who were running or who influenced the election? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. There was a candidate called Maxime Bernier who uh, used to be a cabinet minister at the federal level um, and he ran for the leadership of the Conservative Party, which is the opposition party in Canada, and narrowly lost. So he could have been the alternative prime minister 
that the conservative party had put forward to the electorate. And after he lost uh, that leadership race, he sort of went off the deep end. And he's always been kind of a libertarian sort of dude. But after he lost the leadership, he um, became more and more outspoken about all the things that the conservative party is doing wrong and eventually left to form his own party known as the People's Party of Canada. Oh, that's always um, a good sign, yeah. a good red flag. Well, they ran candidates in almost every electorate in Canada. Um, and it was really an open question as to whether they would get any seats. But it turned out that they got thumped. I mean, Maxime Bernier lost his own seat, which he had been in for like a decade. Did they have an impact on the conservative party's vote? Yeah, you would think, right? And I... The estimates that have come out so far have been that they cost the conservatives like six or seven seats. So not so not not insignificant, but not enough to have formed government. Not not even close. And that's right. And the, the Canadian Parliament is about three hundred and something. Three hundred thirty. Yeah. Three hundred and thirty-eight. So about double the size of the Australian Parliament. I mean, I always thought that one of the reasons why populism was less, uh, I guess, virulent here in Australia, is that um, you know we have. Uh, compulsory voting and we have um, the alternative vote, what we call preferential voting, which sort of helps to kind of moderate that kind of stuff. But Canada doesn't have those two institutional features. Indeed. It's got got first-past-the-post voting and and it's not compulsory. So, I mean, um, yeah, do you just think it's it's the fact that Canadian politics is, is predicated on diversity? That is, that is what is inoculating Canada from this kind of populism that's sort of Spreading across other parts. Of yeah, the world. that's a good question. I, I I don't think necessarily that we're inoculated by anything. I mean, I think it's a totally open question as to whether this could happen. You know, the next election. In fact, you see. Um, so one of the interesting facets of the result was that the governing liberals were totally shut out of Western Canada, which is where the Conservative Party get its support. And there is a renewed push for a Wexit, Western exit from Canada. I see. Um, so whether that ends up – I mean there's just a report I think yesterday that they've now, they are now intending to file – registration papers to become a political party and whether that political party adopts any of those sorts of policy ideas is a totally open question. Right. So so it's, I guess some sort of um, similarities there with Western Australia and it's sort of uh, occasional calls for Sure. For, um, yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. And not, not many people are taking it very seriously. Um, but I mean, Maxime Bernier has vowed that the People's Party is not going anywhere, which I find hard to believe, but it could it absolutely could happen. So I don't I don't think we're necessarily inoculated by anything. What about uh, – May, what do you think? Do you think that um, – I mean, of course we have populists here, but um, do you think that populism is a sort of serious and growing threat in Australia or do you think it's just a bit overblown or – I think populism in Australia is a really interesting question because I think um, – I'm not as negative about, pop, you know, populism as a lot of other people are. I think, you know, it's – right and fair that a lot of people are upset about the way that elites have mismanaged society and the economy and growing inequality and all these things. Um, But I think something that's been really interesting in Australia is the way the current government especially has tried to position itself as, I mean, not so much Malcolm Turnbull, but you look at Scott Morrison and so much of his positioning and posturing is about being anti-elite and being your average person and all of that rhetoric about the quiet Australians. I don't, I don't know if that's part of why the influence of populism has been stemmed in Australia, but I do think we are 
we're seeing shades of it in things like um, the resurgence of One Nation at the 2016 election, you know. So um, back when Turnbull was Prime Minister, which I, you know, I don't think is a coincidence. So I think um, the anger comes from a real place and I think in Australia the right has done a good job at positioning itself as, you know, as an as, ally. Yeah, yeah, yes. as, yeah, as an ally of the people. And um, it's really interesting because the left has been positioned or allowed itself to be positioned as um, a movement of elites, which is, I think, quite new and quite different to kind of when I was becoming politically aware. And So yeah. do, do you think there's room on the left in Australia for a populist uprising? I think the way our party system is structured and the way our parliament is structured makes that extremely unlikely. I think the Australian parliamentary system means it is extremely unlikely to get an equivalent of Jeremy Corbyn coming up through the Australian Labor Party. Well, yeah, yeah. it's just simply yeah. like not the scope for members yeah. to be able to crowd in and control the party like they can in the UK. And he's pretty much like, he, you, they cannot get rid of Jer- Jeremy Corbyn. And it's this strange situation where like the parliamentary caucus just loathes him because he's not actually very good at being an opposition leader. But I think it's something, it's, it's an interesting kind of point you, you make there, May. Um, and uh, I think on the weekend, a book was released by Nick Dyenfirth or Dryenfirth. I, I can never pronounce his name correctly, very sorry. And he was a speechwriter for Bill Shorten um, in the last term and perhaps the term before that. And he's actually a, an Australian political historian of the Labor movement. And he basically sort of, um, his argument is essentially that perhaps uh, there should be quotas for working class people within the Labor Party because he sort of says that, you know, these days, unless you've got tertiary education, there's just no way you can make progress within the Labor Party. Um, and this sort of kind of links to this sort of debate that's going on with the la- in, within the Labor Party right now about like what did the last election loss kind of mean and where mm-hmm. should Labor be going um, now, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I think Labor's got a couple of problems and I think one of them is, you know, obviously the professionalisation of the political class, but I think the other issue that the Labor Party specifically has is the professionalisation of unions because unions used to be a real link between Labor and working people. And Labor obviously still has organised links to unions, but as unions become more professionalised um, and and fewer and fewer leader, leadership positions in unions are occupied by people who were actual workers in those industries. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, it, it is kind of adding to that disconnect that Labor has from its working class base. Well, we we know from from research done at the ANU uh, by 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 me, in fact, and others, uh, including Feo and um, our colleague Matt uh, Matt Kirby, that um, yeah, political staff are increasingly becoming the pathway into politics, a, a very dominant pathway. And this is not just a product of uh, the left, but also the right. Um, and if you're not coming through staffing, then you're coming through other kinds of pathways, either through the unions, which are increasingly professionalised, or um, you know, industry associations, which is sort of the right-wing version of uh, these kinds of you know pathways and organisations. Uh, so you know, it's it's like the the, the whole political class has become. Uh, professionalized and um, 
and not necessarily of the people that they're supposed to represent. Yeah, well, well, part of the reason for that is that it takes quite a lot of resources to run for office. It's not something Absolutely. you can just pick up and do. And there's, a, there's an interesting think piece that came out in the aftermath of this last Canadian election that you know, maybe it's time to start paying political candidates for running because working people can't afford to, to – you know, they don't have the savings to just say, OK, I'm going to quit my job or I'm going to take a leave from my job for the next two months and I'm just going to campaign full time. Where are they going to support themselves? Where are they going to support their families? And if we want people in politics who represent people, you're probably going to have to put some money into it. I mean, yes. And, and that actually goes back to, um, you know, the really early days of uh, widening the franchise, right, where this issue of working people being able to run for politics was actually a really big deal, right? And that is actually why, that's actually the origins of Labor's famous pledge. For those of you that don't know, that's that's basically everyone, every Labor candidate basically agrees to uphold whatever the caucus rules, right? Um, and once that decision has been made, and if they violate that, they're booted out of the party. And that was because um, working people, um, you know, like miners and, uh, you know, farm laborers and s- such like that in the 1890s and would, would enter parliament um, and just basically be bought off by the sort of sort of factional warlords of the day would just basically bribe them to change their their vote. Um, and so this is sort of what led to uh, the paying of uh, MPs in, in the first place. And Australia was like a, a leader on this compared to other other countries. Um, and that's sort of why we sort of fund the opposition as well. And we give we give the leader of the opposition more money and shadow cabinet members more money, and we give them more travel allowances because of this sort of because of this very sort of fact. How did paying candidates go down? Was it supported? Oh, no, no, no. It hasn't actually happened. No, it was just as a think piece that was floated in the aftermath of the election saying, you know, mm-hmm. if, we, if we're really serious about having more working class people and people of diverse backgrounds, um, we have to address the institutional constraints preventing them from running. Um, yeah, but of course, the politics of this are, are really, really bad. Politicians are often seen as the swamp, you know, these elites who – uh, don't represent the people and the idea that we're going to start giving them a salary just for running. Oh. I think uh, I'm I'm a bit uncomfortable with that idea myself, I have to say. I mean, I think it'd probably be better to have well-funded, you know, publicly funded elections, um, you know, to support people's campaigns and do various things to level the playing field in campaigns to make sure different sorts of people uh, can, can run. Uh, but going back to the point that you made, Marie, about caucus solidarity, I actually think that's been a really big part of why left-wing populism can't catch on in the Labor Party in Australia mm. because you you can't have someone who who breaks out and carves out an identity for themselves. Uh, I love the know, nationals. Se- yeah, separate to what the mainstream consensus is. And so I think that's a really big part of why um, to the point we were making earlier, why there can't be an Australian Jeremy Corbyn in the Labor Party. Well, yeah, but you, to what extent yeah. do you think the Greens can adopt sort of – can go into that space? I mean maybe maybe not with the current leader but in general. I think the institutional constraints that allow populism to flourish sort of do exist in Australia, don't they? Full disclosure, I worked as a Green staffer for many, uh, many years. Uh, I think there was a point in time when that was the case where, you know um, – I think 2010 was a really good example of a whole lot of people who were, you know, were voting for the Greens because they were frustrated by elites in the political process. But I think the Greens are also ingre- increasingly regarded as elites by by the community. Um, and I think there's there's a lot of reasons why that's the case. But I think the Greens have had a really interesting journey where 
they spent many years trying to professionalise and trying to appear to be more quote-unquote sensible. And now the political mood has changed and I think they're struggling to readjust their messaging and some of it looks a bit disingenuous now. You know, so <laughs> damned if you do, <laughs> yeah. damned if you do. Yeah, yeah. You sort of had this. Uh, a really good example in the Greens was the uh, the um, inheritance tax, which the party used to fight about a lot, and it was removed from the party's platform in two thousand and twelve. But then it was quietly reinserted a couple of years ago when the mood around taxing wealth just changed completely. So I, th- I think, I think. The Greens are having a really interesting time reorienting themselves to. It'll be really interesting to see where that goes influence. too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're seeing that in the U.S. Mm. of all places, mm. right? Where you have the leading candidate for the Democratic primary advocating for a wealth tax. So I wonder mm. if there's, I mean, an inheritance tax. I suppose would be the first step in Australia towards that. But um, re-establishing the inheritance tax. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Sure. Mm. yes. Mm. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. I think the, the the wealth tax is something that is going to continue to be debated in advanced democracies. I mean, what do you think? Do you think it would happen in Australia? It's very – I can't see a pathway to it happening now. Again, just looking at the way um, politics is going, I think six months ago I was a lot more optimistic about something like a wealth tax coming to Australia. I think since the federal election and just um, seeing the way Labor has chosen to interpret the meaning of the federal election (laughs) – I I think it's unlikely um, that we're going to have a wealth tax on the horizon. But that's a real shame because the real source of inequality in Australia is actually wealth inequality. Work and income is becoming a lot less important than inheriting money or owning property in Australia. And and that's a global phenomenon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We need to readjust to that. Um, Okay, well, let's take a break there. And when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about uh, the Australian political domestic scene. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. All right, welcome back. Um, So on Friday, the Prime Minister made a speech uh, around essentially moving against uh, secondary protests. So this is sort of a bit like in uh, sort of like industrial disputes, secondary boycotts, where one party essentially tries to boycott another party to stop the first party from doing something they don't like. And this was a pretty like, you know, fire and brimstone speech from the Prime Minister in which he essentially sort of attacked uh, the protesters, specifically the Extinction Rebellion protesters that have sort of brought traffic in Melbourne to a halt uh, and has sort of said with, with no detail uh, that the government will be looking to ban this kind of protesting action and make it illegal. Uh, so these are, these are some fighting words by the, the Prime Minister. Um, what do we make of these? Well, I think cracking down on civil society advocacy of any kind, including protests, is really about silencing people who don't already have access to the political system. So if you think about, if we're talking about Extinction Rebellion, and you think about the other side of that coin, which is extractive industries, and all of the different ways that they can access the political process with by meeting with people, by engaging lobbyists, uh, by running advertising campaigns if all of that fails, um, you know, 
they have a lot of access to the political process. And then you have this other group of people. Um, and for years, they did all of the things that you were supposed to do to win people over, you know, um, build an evidence base and a scientific consensus and, you know, try and have a rational debate and all of these things. And at every turn, they're sort of told, well, we're going to attack these environmental advocacy organisations because they're not real charities. And so you can't have you can't have your own organisations speaking out. You know, you can't run for parliament because you're too young and you're too experienced and you're unsuitable. You can't have a boycott. You can't have a protest. I think uh, the issue that they're really taking is with the argument, I think. And then I think there's a secondary part of that too. The point of a process is to disrupt society. So they don't, you know, yeah, it's, it's the they, whole they point don't, is going too far. Yes, that, that's literally the point of a protest. It's it's to create disruption. And so I think they want to avoid the disruption and they want um, to silence that group. It's interesting to see what will come of it because my, my impression of Australians thus far, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that generally speaking, Australians are pretty law-abiding people. You know, they're, they're quite deferential to their government if the government says that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, shall not do X. Australians tend mostly to adopt that. Um, but when you don't have constitutional protections for freedom of expression, when you don't have guarantees uh, that are above the government of the day, it certainly sends a chilling effect through all aspects of civil society because mm. it's difficult to predict in advance what the government will think is crossing a line. And if you start by saying, well, you're disrupting businesses and productivity and the economy and you're costing people jobs and you're costing their economic output, yeah, that's fair enough, but that's sort of the point. Mm. And if the government says – that that is no longer allowed. What is the next? What is the next thing? Right? I mean, particularly. I, I mean, I I support protests, and I think people should be entitled to protest. But it's particularly illogical around boycotts because boycotts are people using market Absolutely. mechanisms exactly. to express oh, in, their individuals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would think using, the liberals using, would be all yes, for that, using, using the market. Yeah, yeah, using using their um, their power in the market to, to to influence the way things go. And so I think I think it really is about taking issue with the argument itself and saying that well, you know, people don't have a right to exercise that that power as a consumer in the marketplace, but these other industries strangely have their own um I guess right to turn over a profit. You well, know, yeah, it'll be as profitable as possible. I mean, like, um, <laughs> I think the government's <laughs> argument here is is profoundly hypocritical. I mean, I do think the sort of the more kind of uh, the sort of more gross tactics. I think, like you know, there's been claims that people have been spat on and stuff like that, are probably not going to achieve the aims that the protesters are sort of seeking. Because I think you are right, Theo, that you know Australians in general are fairly deferential to authority and generally don't like protesters as a, as a general kind of thing. Um, but yeah, this this sort of I mean, I think this is profoundly hypocritical on the government's part, given the amount of sort of uh, blood and treasure they spilt on the freedom of speech, 18C, racial discrimination um, provisions that they tried to change. 
a few years ago, and now they're and also their agenda on the sort of religious freedom um, aspect. And here they're sort of saying like, well, we don't like this kind of speech. Like there is a body of evidence building up around this government, especially given that they're also doubling down on stopping people from being able to speak to whistleblowers, pro- prosecuting whistleblowers. Like there's a pattern of behaviour here that basically seems to say speech is fine so long as it. I agree with it or my voters or my stakeholders agree with it. And if if I don't, then I'm going to use the force of the law against you. And that kind of goes precisely to this problem in Australia right now, which is, you know, that we don't have a Bill of Rights and we don't have um, freedom like of protections. I mean, when I was a much younger woman, I had a lot more faith in Parliament as a body that could necessarily um, – effectively continue to update our laws and to sort of protect us through the sort of, you know, through traditional parliamentary and legislative processes. But, um, you know, watching sort of 15 years of security like legislation be pushed through because, um, you know, the opposition has generally not wanted to be seen to be out on a limb. Like I, I, I no longer have this faith in the legislative branch to do this job. Yeah. And I think that's a big factor that's been motivating the protests because all of the um, kind of respectable avenues have been closed to them. So the scientific and academic process, that hasn't failed, but I think the policy process, you know, in responding to that has has definitely failed. The parliamentary process has failed. You know, interest groups, which is the other sort of respectable way to influence politics, those interest groups have really been targeted by this government in Australia. And so you've seen uh, the changes to the way um, environmental charities are regulated and the way their tax deductibility status is treated, for example, just for environmental NGOs. So I think it's perfectly understandable that people are extremely frustrated and feel totally disempowered by the systems that are supposed to represent them. You do have to wonder, though, to what extent this is a genuine belief on the part of the prime minister and the the ministers in the government and the extent was just a political move designed to appeal to a certain base. Yeah, the base. Yeah. I mean, I think there is an element of this being a distraction in the sense that the government won an election it didn't expect to win. It agreed to a whole bunch of um, reviews that it didn't think it'd have to deal with, the aged care one being a classic example. Um, And it's now got to actually resolve a whole bunch of really complex policy problems. And come up with an agenda, right? And come up with an agenda, which they still don't have. Campaign on one. Exactly. I mean, they and they delivered their tax cuts, and I think there were reports yesterday, basically showing that they haven't had the sort of economic stimulus sort of effect that the government had been hoping for, um, because the number of deductions or something like this, I can't quite recall. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, and this is a really kind of easy um, way to uh, to offer a distraction because it does all the things that you kind of want it to do. Like your cheerleaders cheer and go, yeah, damn environmental greenies. Um, we're outraged and talking about it and, um, and, and, and upset. And um, obviously Scott Morrison sort of thinks that this is another way to sort of split and divide Labor. And I thought it was really interesting that Labor's response to this was to basically call it a thought bubble and to yeah. and to kind of ignore it. Although to play devil's advocate for two seconds, it's interesting to think that if if this policy thought bubble is you know symptomatic or if it's reflecting a broader discontent within the Australian public with protests, you sort of do have to wonder 
for, on the part of the leaders of the Extinction, Extinction Rebellion or other protests, you know, whether they're actually achieving what they're setting out to achieve. And if, if the goal is to disrupt and to kick up a fuss, but ultimately to change something, you do have to wonder if their current approach, which is certainly pissing off a large section of the Australian public, if that's actually going to get them what they want or not. I mean, what, what do you think, Mark? Well, I mean, it's called a rebellion for a reason, right? I mean, I do think that the students' protest is is more effective, right? The the, the students' strike um, because it's children. It's really difficult to criticize children. The government's already tried to criticize children, had a hard time making that one land. And, um, and I think more and more, you know, parents and their, you know, and, and family members are, are joining students on the student strike. But I don't think the Extinction Rebellion, um, is, is the similar kind of, of protest. I think, it is a rebellion. That's why it's got to be absolutely kind of um, disruptive. And whilst it may not necessarily achieve um, the goals they want, I think it is a sort of signalling that might be kind of important about where certain people are in this space on this kind of um, continuum. What do you think, May? I think the protests, if they can be sustained, will be effective because the obstacle in Australia is actually not public consensus. It's actually political will. And so I think if you can... If you can build up this, can, this head of state, If, if yeah. you can disrupt our yeah. major cities and the way they operate, you know, I, I think the danger there is that you lose the public consensus that you, that you had that's in exactly, the first place. That's, that's exactly but the I, point, I yeah. think, uh, you know, I, I think that's not the obstacle. This isn't, um, you know... I, There's the, vegan, already... the vegans are an easy target, so I hate to say the vegans, but they were the first thing that came into my head. These sorts of tactics are less likely to work for people who have, you know, niche causes where, you know, their first step really does need to be to build some public support. But I think in this case, it's really about influencing the political process and causing disruption, I think, can I, be if it's sustained. I think I think it can I, it can I, it can cause. I know. wonder to what I mean, you're I hope you're right. Yeah, personally, but at the same time, given that I mean. Scott Morrison, whether he campaigned on, on gender or not, it's difficult to argue that he's a really smart guy and that he's very astute to public sentiment and where the mood is blowing. So if, if he's picking up on the fact that enough Australians are pissed off about uh, these rebellions, maybe the politics of this are actually not going in the way that the the rebellion would want it to go. And I guess I, I do wonder to what extent I mean, your point about the fact that there's a public consensus on it, there's a, people are, are mostly on board. I do wonder because this last election was um, was litigated at least in part on the idea of a carbon tax and what are you going to do about the environment. And because you have compulsory voting, everybody got to weigh in and it seems like people didn't weigh in on that right, which is disappointing. But it does I make think you, it's I more think, complex. Yeah, right. I don't know if I agree with that. I, 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 it's It's deeply frustrating when a government gets elected and it's like, right – this this vote that we got ipso facto means that everybody agrees with every aspect. No, of course, of and I wasn't, and I wasn't suggesting to, you know, that, yeah, but yeah, at yeah, least so. in part on on this this massive policy mm. that had the potential to change a lot about Australian life and the way Australia relates to the rest of the world and to its neighbours uh, at foreign and domestic dimensions too. And I think, it, of course, there were other factors, but I think it's it it, it would be. I would think that that's at least one very important one. Yeah, I mean, I think 
I think these sort of protests are, I mean, the, the rebellion, the Extinction Rebellion, I'm, I'm not quite sure um, exactly how that will, will play out. I, I mean, I do, this, this, these protests, these student protests and the Extinction Rebellion, they do remind me of the advocacy around the Vietnam War, right? Which, um, you know, there was a lot of sort of extreme kind of activism that's sort of more like the Extinction Rebellion and then the sort of dignified, quiet, uh, sort of, um, moral kind of force built up by mothers of uh, people who were serving or, you know, sons or, or the mothers of sons who were afraid of the draft and and the, the very respectability of these women who had previously not really participated all that much in politics, a bit like sort of students and their families, makes it really kind of hard for governments to kind of manoeuvre out of that. But I guess the Extinction Rebellion does force the government to constantly deal with this issue because it is causing disruption and um, given that the government's policy response is inadequate, it does sort of um, put the question back onto the government about well, what is it that they're actually planning to do about climate change because um, it's not as if this isn't a question that governments haven't been talking about for 15 years and I think it's now destroyed, what, four prime ministers? Mm. Um uh, yeah, you know, and and hey, maybe a fifth. You never know. I mean, this is the the issue that sort of that sort of keeps on um, giving. And I think it actually really segues neatly with this. One of the things that Arthur Sinodinus sort of said on his his way out of politics, which was he sort of um, praised um, Scott Morrison. He's called him a complete um, politician, uh, which is I think interesting in of itself. And he sort of also likened this government to being a first term government rather than a, a third term government. Now I thought this was very clever politics, um, but I I'm I'm not sure I, I buy this <laughs> that um, that because we have a new prime minister and because it was almost you know and because he, of the, the nature of his victory that it's somehow like a first term politics a first term prime minister. I mean, to me, this does look like a government that has uh, has you know lost a fair bit of skin and is um, is sort of still needing to come up with solutions to all the sort of problems that it that it sort of inherited and is actually responsible for some of these problems that have kind of arisen um, now. Uh, am I am I too cynical, or is this a golden moment for? For the the new government, no, I think I think you're exactly right, and it's difficult to argue that it's a first term government. You know, you, you have that video clip of Scott Morrison draping his arm around Malcolm Trouble and saying, "This is my leader. This is my prime minister." Yeah. I'm and ambitious for him. Exactly right. So it's it's difficult to argue that Scott Morrison is in any way, shape, or form a new figure and a new visionary leader with an agenda to speak of. So. I think the challenge for Labor and people who are challenging the government's agenda is actually to make them wear the age of this government and make them uh, wear the political consequences of everything that's happened from the Abbott era all the way through to the era that we're in now. Um, I think during the Rudd-Gillard-Rudd years, you know, they were Gillard. extraordinarily good at making them wear the responsibility they, yes, all for of everything. The, you know, all of the kind of bad smell of the, the you know <laughs> of the preceding regimes in the three changeovers that we had. You know, the 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 government um, was made to wear that, and I think that's that's really the challenge now. I'm not. I, th I think Morrison did a really good job of rebranding himself and presenting himself as something 
new and separate to what had gone on before in the campaign. And I think it's just a question of whether he can be allowed to get away with that because there are so many. Yeah, structurally uh, all the same stuff is there, right? Like, I mean, um, you know, what was kind of interesting about the last sort of this this government, like I mean the whole government, is that the issues that have dominated it dominated have all been kind of traditionally Labor's kind of issues, right? Like outside of the surplus. Uh, and that's, you know, like lowering living standards, housing affordability. And now we've got, you know, with the two royal commissions, the um, disability uh, services uh, sort of fiasco there and and aged care. Like these are not traditionally Liberal Party um, strengths, um, you know, well, not the, not the areas that they own. We like to call this issue ownership in the political science um, literature. And, um, you know, the government has presided over some of these domains now for six years, um, hasn't actually been able to resolve any of these issues, and these issues remain here to be uh, solved. And it's not clear that this government has any new solutions than the old kind of government had. And um, I guess I wonder how long voters will be prepared to sort of wait for for Scott Morrison's new regime to, to come up with sort of any solutions. I think some of Labor's responses to that that we saw at the election, you know, some of the responses to lowering, you know, living standards and, and wages and that sort of thing, I think they were calibrated when Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister and we could see that they I just agree. didn't, yeah, totally. Franken Credits is a really good example of something that I think they might have been able to pull off while Turnbull was still Prime Minister, but I really don't think it landed. Yeah, yeah that's they, right. They, because They didn't recalibrate it. Scott, um, Pal- Malcolm Turnbull and Bill Shorten were really well matched in the sense that they both were quite civil, they both liked debating, they both liked ideas. And so in that sense, they sort of interacted really very well. Whereas like Shorten versus Abbott or Shorten versus Scott Morrison, just, you know, would just, that's not a good pairing because, um, both, both the, you know, Abbott and Scott Morrison are, have, really astute political instincts for um and 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 an absolute killer instinct and 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 Bill Shorten's never really had that kind of capacity and so um and so on that sort of um billing you know they didn't do nearly as well and i guess this sort of goes to to the qualities of Anthony Albanese and he sort of said that he wants to be a labor leader not leader of the opposition and by this he kind of means that you know he sort of wants to kind of lower some of the sort of visceral kind of government opposition politics that has sort of governed Australian politics now since the minority government in 2010 and you know so he's asked asked MPs to not do things like call people liars unless there's good evidence to suggest that or to say things are corrupt or to like remove like the kind of silly rhetoric around question time questions. So, you know, for example, will the Prime Minister apologise to the Australian people for power prices increasing? But instead to ask about the actual mechanisms underpinning pricing in the electricity market. I mean, do we think this is going to work? I haven't seen any evidence that uh, <laughs> that that Anthony Albanese is going to be a you know it's interesting because he's 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 such a creature of the Labor Party and Labor people uh, and you know Labor staffers and particularly people on the left just praise him as this master tactician and this you know um, tr- tr- real true believer of the left. I don't think we've seen evidence of that in his leadership so far. For someone who's coveted the leadership for so long. I don't think we have any sense of where he plans uh, to to take the Labor Party. Um, I think I always welcome a, you know, reduction in the use of nonsense language. So, you know, that side of it is great if they're not going, you know, less grandstanding 
fantastic. But I, I think uh, saying he wants to be a Labor leader, I'm really curious about where that's going to go. I actually think a leadership contest, I know that um, in the days after the election, the weeks after the election, there was a lot of manoeuvring to stop a leadership contest from going on and just a real push to have Albanese just ascend to the leadership really easily. But I think last time, Shorten was a really successful opposition leader in his early years against Abbott, and he was successful at times against Turnbull, and he did a really good job on the 2016 campaign. And I actually think a big part of all of that was the fact that he contested a leadership election, and that gave the Labor Party a real sense of purpose. And he had to start some work of crafting an agenda and telling a story about himself from the beginning of his leadership. Whereas I think for the last couple of months, well, it might I, have I helped don't, Labor I don't, I don't, to have the sorting process. Yeah. I mean, yeah. forcing leadership contenders to articulate a vision for what they want the country to be. I mean, if he's going to be the leader of the Labour Party, presumably Labour has to have a message that it can take to the electorate. And as the leader, he's at least in part in charge of crafting that. I mean, he started, I think it was last week, he came up with his vision statement, quote unquote. Oh, on the economy, yeah. Yeah, which didn't actually say very much. And I think Could you refresh my memory. What did that say? <laughs> he basically said um, that climate change and the economy are actually the same issue and that, um, you know, we should not be looking to sort of treat them as sort of either or issues and that Labor can do a lot in uh, paving the way for new green jobs to replace old brown jobs. And there's stuff about affordability and, and uh, I mean, it's stuff that is difficult to disagree with. And it's mm. it's difficult to see that it's really an alternative government in waiting because, like, well, yeah, everyone agrees with that. I think it's not going to be. Uh, I, I'm prepared to give him a bit more uh, credit. I mean, there's, there's six months out from the from losing this election. Um, I, I read something in the paper the other day saying um, someone inside the Labor Party described it as grief. It's like, yes, that's exactly what this is. They're, they're grieving for the fact that they were convinced that they were going to win. Mm. And um, and perhaps having a leadership contest might have actually uh, maybe just allowed them to expel some of these emotions more quickly. Um, I, I, I'm still on the fence about Albanese and his capacity. Sometimes he reminds me of Beasley, which doesn't fill me with confidence um, as sort of a, a thoroughly decent person, but who ultimately didn't have the sort of ruthless killer instinct to... Um, oh, really? In I'm there. curious yeah, to, yeah. to what extent you guys think that that ruthless killer instinct is actually at odds with his true believer leftist credentials, because at least... Some people in the Labour Party would think that the results of the last election repudiated some of the more left-wing policy proposals that Labour put forward. And as a, as a true believer, Albanese would probably be quite in favour of those things. But as a yeah. master tactician, he might think that's not politically prudent. That has been interesting because during uh, during Shorten's leadership, he was really positioning himself to the right of Shorten and periodically would deliver speeches about the importance of maintaining great relationships with business and certainly during the Batman by-election. His camp was uh, backgrounding journalists about, you know, the franking credits policy and what a debacle it would be, and if we lose the Batman by-election, that'll be why. So we had it was a, a really curious time, I think. He, he's he's an interesting figure in the sense that you know he grew up in a housing commission uh, with a single mom with rheumatoid arthritis, uh, so you know he has really strong working class credentials. Um, but he also he represents the seat of Grandler, which is um, you know in the city's in Sydney's inner inner west, and um, it is a hugely progressive sort of seat. Um, so he has sort of a kind of 
a foot, I guess, in both camps. And being of the left means that he spent his entire career um, fighting the New South Wales right. But I guess that's what I mean. Like, I, I have no doubt that he can fight internally, but whether or not that translates into fighting um, not the true enemy, because that's always your factional rifles, but the opposition, <laughs> right? The government. Yeah. Yeah. That, that I kind of, that I do sort of um, wonder about. And I guess uh, he's sort of, he's sort of basically kind of saying, well, wait and see, you know, like it's only been six months. Like we all just need time. We all just need to be taking a chill pill. And in some ways that's probably right. But I guess it's whether or not that actually translates into something effective yeah. is that's the question for me that remains to be seen. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think we can leave it there. Thanks for that. That's been a really interesting discussion. And remember, listeners, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us in a variety of ways on Twitter via APPS Policy Forum, or you can join the Facebook group Policy Forum Pod, or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. And for those of you that haven't subscribed, think about hitting that subscribe button now. Maybe give us a review. Tell your friends if you like this podcast. Um, spread the word. It definitely helps uh, the show. Um, so thanks very much, and we'll see you next week. Bye. See ya. Bye.